0: You're listening to the Gates Church podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. Today, we're going to be starting a journey together through the Book of Galatians. So I'm really excited about that, and uh, hopefully. We'll uh, gain a deeper understanding of the freedom that we have in Christ and, and all that entails. So uh, we're starting the year off right. It's going to be good. And, and like, I said, like I said, in my opinion, there's no better way to start the year off than by coming back to this truth, um, to our foundation, reminding ourselves of, of why we're here and, and why we do this church thing together. Uh, the beginning of the year is always a good time to do that, right? So uh, you know to take stock of last year and and look ahead um, to the new year and and, and so we're going to use the beginning of this series to, to kind of do that this morning to take stock and remind ourselves of why we're here. Of course, that's the whole purpose of making new year's resolutions, right? We set goals. We try to realign our our purpose in life. We try to refocus on who we want to be, what we want to accomplish. Uh, you know, to honestly admit where we we kind of strayed off course or or misaligned our priorities, also that we can we can make adjustments and, and resolve to change for the better. And and that's not a bad thing to do. It's not a horrible thing to do. It's a good thing to do, right? So so we make resolutions like. This year, I'm going to read my Bible every day because last year I got too busy and I didn't really make it a priority. I didn't manage my time well. So I'm going to, I'm going to read my Bible every day. Or, you know, or we say something like, I'm going to quit smoking so I can be a healthy, healthier me for my family. Or I'm actually going to pick up that guitar that I bought that's been sitting on my shelf and I'm actually going to learn that. All right? we make resolutions, stuff like that. We know who we want to be. We know what went wrong. So we promise ourselves that this year, 2019, we'll try harder to, be, to become that person. But just trying harder, let's be honest, try it, it rarely works out, right? Um, with that being said, we're already, what, six days? Six days into 2019, right? Which probably means, no offense, but it probably means that most of your resolutions have already been forgotten or failed, and if not, according to my research, 80% of our New Year's resolution will certainly fail by the beginning of February. That's that's the stats. That's, that's how it is, which means that only 20% of us just might have the stubbornness or, or willpower to, to make it past February and, and maybe even to keep them through the whole year. Right? Usually it's those people that have that type A personality. Uh, where they've set achievable goals and made a game plan that they can they can follow and keep their resolution on track, and that's, that's smart and important to do. Good on you if you've done that. I, I'm not that type of person, um, and I guess 80% of those of us aren't those type of people either, because 80% of us will fail. Maybe because the goals are too unrealistic, maybe because they were more work than we expected, you know. But whatever the reason, but but in my opinion, one of the main reasons so many people fail at their resolutions is because they're not actually passionate about them. They're not actually passionate about them. Most, most resolutions, they, they start with enthusiasm, right? We're, we're all excited and ready to change, and we're thinking about that person that we want to be, and we're like, oh, i would be so cool if I was that person. I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be that person that, that, that I'm imagining, and then we're excited about that. But then even with a game plan, or, or even if we set achievable goals, our resolutions often start to feel like really hard work. Right? and really time-consuming, mostly because they usually are. Change is hard. Growth takes time. And it's at that point where we, where we usually realize whether or not we're, we're actually passionate about our resolutions, or if they were more just like pipe dreams or wishes that we weren't really invested in with our heart of hearts. Like if we could magically become that person, we'd, we'd be pretty happy about that but we're not actually invested enough to do the work. Like the person who, who resolves to go to the gym three times a week, right? But isn't really that passionate about working out, but they, but they just feel they should. I should get healthier, so I'm going to resolve to go to the gym three times a week. So they use their enthusiasm for being healthy as, as, a, as a high and a motivator to get through the first week. And um, then they begrudgingly go twice the second week, And then at that point, their muscles are are, are sore and and work was kind of tiring that day. And also their their favorite show, the mid-season premiere, is is happening tonight. And so they they don't go. And then they never go back again, right? And the whole time they did go, it it felt like an uphill battle. It felt like a burden. It felt like they they were in a a prison. They were were like like a slave to this dumb resolution that they made. And I'm sure that we can all relate to that in, in some sense. And in all, honestly, that, that would be, that would be me. And I know some of you love the gym, which is great. I'm not knocking the gym. If you go to the gym, that's awesome. Mandy will train you. It's not so awesome. You'll thank her after. But I'm just not passionate about going to the gym. So, so if I made that resolution, I'd, I'd fail that within days. That would be me. But yet I still want to be healthy and active so instead, what I do is I, I play soccer because I love playing soccer. I'm passionate about it. And I also work, at home, work out at home with my wife because I'm invested in, in supporting her and, and to help her see her goals accomplished as well. So, so those two things don't feel like chores or a burden to me. In fact, they're commitments that, that, that are really easy for me to keep because I'm passionate about them, because I'm committed to them, because I'm invested in them, because my heart's in it. My heart's in it. And, and this is the point. Our passions drive everything we do. Our passions drive everything we do. In fact, eventually, we always make our passions our priorities. We always make our passions our priorities. Luke twelve thirty four says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your heart will always be found in the same place your treasure is and vice versa. And so in the same way, when it comes to who we are as as Christians and who we are as a church, you know, our purpose, our our mission, what we're all about, what we want to accomplish, what what we do, you know, the the things that we run, the programs we run and and all that kind of stuff. It needs to be founded and rooted in our treasure. In what we're passionate about. And in what our heart is invested in. And so what are we passionate about? At the gate, simply but profoundly, our passion is this, proclaiming the name of Jesus for the glory of God, proclaiming the name of Jesus for the glory of God. That's what we're all about at the gate. It's written on the back wall, proclaiming the name of Jesus for the glory of God. Albert Muller, a theologian, he writes this. He says, the Christian finds passion in the great truths of the Christian faith especially in the gospel of Jesus Christ. No one who has truly experienced the transforming and redeeming power of the gospel can think of life without passion. A Christian arises from this passion and is driven by it. A Christian arises from this passion and is, and is driven by it. In other words, that's why we exist. That's why we do this thing. That's as, as why we do this church thing, right? This is what drives us. To, to, to do what we do and to, to be who we are, it's, because, it's all because of and to Jesus. And therefore, we want in everything we do as a church to, to be done from and, and for that, that drive and that desire to proclaim Jesus, to, to bring glory to God. And, and I want to clarify that when I talk about passion, the word passion... I'm not using that word in the same way like an 80s romance movie would or like Romeo and Juliet does, right? Which is an irrational emotion uh, based solely on on feeling and and, and fickle infatuation. That's not the kind of passion I'm talking about here. That that, That kind of passion is fleeting, like our enthusiasm for our New Year's resolutions, right? The passion I'm talking about is referring to be completely invested in our hearts, and in our minds, intellectually and theologically, in our soul by the Spirit and in our strength through the way that we live. And we, and we, again, we need it to be this way. Because it's only in His grace, by His Spirit, that, that will see results, that will make disciples, that will be who we're called to be as the Church. Philip Graham Reichen, another theologian, he writes this, he says, when, the, when the Church does what it is supposed to do, everything it does, exalts the name of jesus christ the result is a growing church a church that god will use to bring people to know him in a saving way and we we want people to know him in a saving way so in the same sense it's it's only a deep conviction for his name that will propel us to authentic and and successful action in every other area of ministry and calling because, again, unless we're forced, unless we're coerced, unless we feel like we have to, we'll, we'll rarely act upon something we're not excited about or invested in. And, it, and it's here that we find the source of our motivation and, and where our hearts are truly at, right? Because a, a passion for Jesus will change our, our, our minds and our hearts to be passionate and invested in the very things that he is, right? Building the church making disciples, serving one another, loving our neighbor, prayer, worshiping God, all those things, right? If we're passionate about Jesus, we'll be passionate about what he is, is passionate about. So if we're not excited or if we're, if we're not eager to live as we're called to do as Christians, the, the issue is probably that we've turned from or forgotten our foundation, our passion. If we're unable to, to love selflessly and we're, and we're more likely to live selfishly, it's probably because we've turned from our forgotten, our passion. The Apostle Paul, as most of us probably know, was, was someone who was passionate about Jesus. And, and he once wrote to the Corinthian church about how all that he does overflows from that soul passion. And I love this passage, Second Corinthians 5, 13 to 15. He says, For if, if we are beside ourselves... It is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who might live, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So it's Christ who, who controls us, who compels us, as another translation says. Alternatively, if, if, if we forget this... If we allow our, our own desires or opinions to compel us, or, or cultural pressure, or making money, or legalism and, and, and religiousness, or our self-righteousness, or politics, or, or whatever else that isn't isn't about Jesus and making Him known, then our priorities as as a church and as believers will become misaligned, right? And, and even worse, the work we do will we'll start to feel like a burden, like slavery. All these things that Jesus is calling us to do, it it won't feel worth it. We'll become burnt out. We'll become jaded. We'll we'll become no longer unified as a church or, or apathetic. So it must be Christ who compels us in everything we do. We have to come back to that. And as we take a look now to the letter of Galatians, it's, it's this passion and drive for Jesus' name that the Apostle Paul exemplifies as he, as he writes to the churches in Galatia. And, and he's, he's writing to them because they've forgotten this very thing. They've forgotten this very thing. They've forgotten who their foundation is. They've forgotten the freedom that they've been given in Christ. So they're no longer passionate for Jesus' name and what he's done for them, no longer living in light of that, but rather they've regressed and, and started to become focused on their own self-righteousness and their own works and, and their, their legalism as a means to, to try to gain God's favor and blessing. Basically, they've been coerced into thinking that, that Jesus alone isn't enough. They've been coerced by, by, by these other teachers that have come in, in, in into thinking that God's acceptance of them also depends on their own actions and their, their own works But as Paul will remind them repeatedly throughout the letter, Jesus is enough. His grace is sufficient. And that by shifting their trust and and focus off of him and onto their own self-righteous works and and, and religious piety, they're actually just rebuilding the walls of, of slavery to the law and placing a burden back on themselves that Jesus already tore down and already carried for us at the cross. So Paul, in, in his own passion for, for, for Jesus' name, starts the, this letter in a way that's unlike any of his other letters. Because in his urgency, he, he basically skips over the way he usually encourages and thanks God for those he's writing to. And instead, he just dives right in. He goes straight to the topic at hand. He, he starts addressing the issues right away. So he reminds them off the bat of the gospel. He reminds them that it's all about Jesus, his own life and calling. It's all about Jesus, their lives and their salvation, our, our eternal life in the age to come. God's will and plan for redemption. It's all about Jesus and for the glory of God. And again, in his letter, he starts there at that truth. Because, because everything we do in our as in Christians has to start there. This is our foundation. So please turn with me now to Galatians 1. 1 to 5. It'll be up on the screen behind me as well. So Galatians 1, 1 to 5. It says this. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Basically, this this introduction accomplishes two things here. First of all, Paul's introducing himself and those he's with, and, and, and acknowledging those he's writing to as well. And secondly, again, he's introducing and establishing the topics which, will be, which he'll be expanding on through the, throughout, the, throughout the rest of the letter. So he's introducing himself, who he's writing to, and the topics that he's going to be talking about. And, and firstly, as, as most letters of those days did, this letter starts out with the name of the person writing it. So he says, Paul, an apostle. And many of us probably know about Paul, but just in case, Paul, who also went by Saul, was a former Pharisee, a Jewish Pharisee, who spent most of his days proudly and and self-righteously persecuting and killing Christians until Jesus appeared to him and turned his whole life around. It was just like that, turned his life around, and Jesus called him to be an apostle for his name. And from that life-changing moment, he spent his life traveling around and, and planting churches, making disciples, and proclaiming the gospel of Christ to, to, to anyone who would listen. And most of his ministry is recorded in the book of Acts, which I'm sure that we'll be referring to quite a bit over the course of this series, especially because his time preaching the gospel, uh, in the province of Galatia is specifically mentioned throughout Acts 13 to 15. So we'll probably be drawing from that quite a bit. Um, and it's there that he visits and he, and he makes disciples of Christ in the cities and towns of uh, Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and, and Derbe. And these are all located in, uh, in the region of Asia Minor, which the Romans had titled the province of Galatia. So that's why it's called the Galatians. That's who he's writing to, these churches. And this is probably why he's so concerned here and so so filled with with uh, a sense of urgency as he writes this letter, because he knows these people personally, or he knows most of them personally. He's he's the one that shared the gospel with them in the first place. And so so I'm sure upon hearing that they've forgotten it and and turned from the very core of its message and and, and turned instead onto their own works and their own self-righteousness again, that that he's he's probably pretty upset. He's probably pretty disappointed and, of course, saddened at hearing this. And you can sense that urgency in his letter. But he knows that one of the reasons that they'd been easily persuaded to turn from the message that he brought to them was because these false teachers had first slandered and spread lies about Paul himself. It's a a classic play, one that we see often, right? In order to discount someone's message, all you have to do is discount the character of the person right and and these false teachers did this by telling the Galatians that Paul wasn't really a true apostle that, that he didn't carry the same authority as, as James or Peter or John because he wasn't actually, you know, an original disciple of Jesus, which can only mean then that he wasn't sent by Jesus himself. And, and if he's not a real apostle selected by Jesus himself, then, then just by men. And that means that, that he doesn't actually have full authority on the matter. And these teachers are saying, well, we come straight from, from the real apostles. We're messengers of the real apostles. And I can definitely see how, how the Galatians could be tricked by this, right? It sounds right and after like yeah paul wasn't an original disciple you know and how would they confirm it or, or deny it they can't you know call up paul on the phone and say hey are they telling the truth they they can't do that back then right so inevitably of course as they began to doubt paul's authority they would certainly start to doubt paul's teaching like you know maybe, maybe these new teachers are right maybe maybe paul was wrong maybe Paul didn't understand it fully. Maybe maybe believing in in Jesus isn't enough. Maybe we we do need to still follow the law and and do good works to be saved or at least to remain saved. So that's why Paul starts the letter by, by immediately refuting the false claims about himself that have gone around. He says, Paul, an apostle, not called by man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And you you can tell by his blunt tone that he's a a little ticked. In in the Greek, it would be more like Paul, apostle, not called by men. Right? He's he's ticked. Right? He's called by Jesus. How else would you explain the, the turnaround in his life? In other words, no, he wasn't a disciple, but still very much carries the the authority of an apostle because it was the risen Christ who appeared to him and and changed his life and sent him. In fact, he spends a lot of chapter one and chapter two on this very subject, defending his apostleship and his authority. So we're not going to go into it too much today. But right off the bat, he's laying his claim to the title of apostle. But it's not just to defend himself. It's not just himself that he's worried about. Like he says later, he's not concerned with pleasing men. So I don't think he's worried about himself at all, really. Rather, he's only defending his authority of, as an apostle, primarily so, that, primarily so that they'll actually listen to what he says about Jesus. He says, I, I do have authority, and, and you need to listen to what I have to say. And this is basically what he says To the churches in Galatia in this intro, he says to them, I long for you to know the grace and peace of God the Father. I long for you to know that grace and peace to you. He says, I want you to know that it's God who gets the glory in all of this because he's the one who planned it. He sent his son. He raised Jesus from the dead. The glory goes to God. And in the middle of that, he says, I want you to know most of all that this grace is given to us freely because Jesus Christ willingly died for our sins and has freed us to live apart from the bondage of this present evil age. In summary, he's proclaiming the name of Jesus, his, his grace, the, the freedom that he's given us. And he's doing this for the glory of God. Proclaiming the name of Jesus for the glory of God. And obviously he's going to be expanding on this point and, and this truth throughout the rest of his letter. But right away he's, he's setting the foundation. He's setting the foundation. And not only for, for the rest of his letter, but for their lives. He's setting the foundation. He's reminding them of the gospel that saved them. He's, he's reminding them that our freedom as, as Christians isn't, isn't a result of what we've done or what we do, but that because of what Jesus has done. As Philip Reichen again writes, that the way out, the way out, our freedom, the way out is called the gospel. It is the good news that Jesus Christ has already done everything necessary for our salvation. If we trust in him, he will make us right with God by giving us the free gift of grace. So we reject our own righteousness to receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And, and this is the good news. This is the good news. We no longer have to carry the burden of our sin, which is too heavy for us, right? We don't have to work our fingers to the bone to make God like us. Jesus did it for us. Jesus has finished it all. He is all we need. And Paul's number one goal is to bring the Galatians back to this truth so that they can experience and and learn once again what it means to live in this freedom. Our problem, though, like the Galatians, is is that we do have a tendency to revert back to legalism, to works. We, We can't deny that there's... It's kind of legalist or a Pharisee type in all of us, right? Whether it's because of pride, we, you know, we want to have the credit and we think we can earn it, or because of guilt, where we feel we're undeserving of grace, so, so we feel like we need to atone for it ourselves, whatever it is. And, and so while we might believe God loves us, that Jesus died for us, we tend to subconsciously believe as well that, that his love is conditional. We, so, we try to do things or, or avoid doing things so that we can earn His grace and remain in His favor. The ironic and, and unfortunate thing, though, is that, is that when we try to add human effort to, to God's love and, and grace, we're actually denying His love and grace. We're basically trying to take the glory that's God's and we're trying to take it for ourselves. So throughout this series, as as we explore this more, I'd like to challenge us to to be honest with ourselves. To take a good hard look at our own heart and our motivations in this regard. So that like like, like Paul's teaching the Galatians, we can also learn and and experience uh, in a greater way what it means to, to live out our faith in the freedom of Christ and this free gift of grace. Because... Our Christian life shouldn't feel like a burden. It shouldn't feel like a burden. Yeah, it might be difficult at times. But it should feel worth it. The commandments of Jesus shouldn't feel like like slavery, like these things we just have to do. As Christians we, we, we also shouldn't feel like like we're guilty all the time or, or that we're unworthy. Or that we have to perform a certain way just to make just to be close to God. Because in Jesus we've already been set free from guilt. There's no condemnation in Christ, right? Through the blood of Jesus we're already given confident access to God. In Jesus we're we're already given the power of the spirit to live for him. Of course, over the rest of the series, we'll be getting a a greater understanding of what all this means and what freedom is and what that looks like practically, and and I'm really looking forward to going through it with with you all over the next couple of months. It'll be challenging for us, in a good way, I hope. So make sure we're praying for one another. Pray for for myself and, and Blair as we prepare this. But it's going to be good. And, and for today, we're, we're going to stop here. And since it's the first Sunday of the year, I'd, I'd like to take this opportunity, uh, as I said at the beginning, to, to use this passage as a reset for our church as well, so to speak. Like, like Paul's doing for the Galatians, you know, to, to realign, to, to recalibrate our hearts and lives back onto our foundation, our freedom, our passion, to place our trust, in Christ alone. So, so that as we start this new year, we, we can start it off right. As Reckon again writes, we are tempted to forget sometimes that Jesus is all we need. And when we forget, we need to rediscover the gospel of God's free grace. You know, that's why Jesus always tells us to remember so we're going to have the opportunity to do that now by receiving communion. And I've asked a couple of elders and, and their wives to serve us this morning, and, and they can come up now, those that I've asked. Thank you. And the purpose that I've called, the reason I've called them up to serve is that as we remember what Jesus did for us at the cross, I want us to. I want us to recognize and acknowledge that this is a free gift that's given to us by God. It's given to us. So the elders will, will symbolize this by handing it to you, right? By serving you the elements. And all you have to do is receive it. All you have to do is receive it. And and, and you can receive it right when they hand it to you. They're going to hand you the, the cracker. You can... You can receive it, they're going to hand you the the juice, you can receive it. And again, this is how grace works. It's it's free. It's given to us. Jesus died at the cross for our sin, for our freedom, and all we have to do is receive it. Humbly receive it. Believe it by faith we we don't have to work for it we don't have to we don't have to earn it we don't have to do anything but turn our minds and hearts to jesus because he's done all that needs to be done romans 10 verse 9 says if you confess with your mouth jesus is lord and believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead you will be saved so as we take communion as we receive and and remember jesus body that was broken for us and his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins Let's confess this. Let's, let's rediscover this truth. And for those who, who have never received it, I encourage you to take, take that opportunity right now as well. Because why not right now? Receive his grace. Receive that freedom that Jesus offers us. Believe in his name and you will be saved. So let's turn our hearts to Jesus. Let's proclaim his name. For the glory of God. At this time, if you believe in Jesus, you can come and receive communion.